This episode includes discussions of anti-Semitism and violence. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. In 1914, American auto magnate Henry Ford made headlines by announcing that the Ford Motor Company would be raising the salary of his factory workers to $5 per day, double the national average. Ford believed that his employees should be able to afford the cars they were building, and the only way to achieve that was to give them a raise. However, the salary came with a caveat for all foreign-born workers, mandatory English classes focused on the so-called American way of life. On July 5, 1915, in Detroit, Michigan, Ford's English School held its first graduation ceremony. After singing upbeat songs, drinking refreshments, and watching a concert, the graduates were steered into the Ford melting pot. Dressed in their national garbs, they filed down a walkway toward a giant cauldron. After passing through the cauldron, which stagehands stirred with giant oars, the graduates emerged waving American flags. According to the Ford Times, the event was symbolic of the fusing process which makes raw immigrants into loyal Americans. Others saw it as symbolic of Ford's desire to own that fusion. His single-minded belief that he knew best and his determination to make sure that he stayed in control at any cost. Welcome to Dictators, a Spotify original from Parcast. I'm Richard. And I'm Kate. You can find all episodes of Dictators and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. This season, we've been exploring the robber barons of the Gilded Age. Today, we conclude with the last of the great American tycoons, Henry Ford. Ford's impact on American life was unmatched, not only during his lifetime, but to this day. By building the world's first affordable automobile, paying his workers $5 a day, and introducing the assembly line into the automobile industry, Ford transformed the United States into an upwardly mobile, urban-minded economy of consumers. But as he aged, Ford became isolated and paranoid. He pined for the America of his childhood, an America that he helped destroy. We'll have all that and more coming up. Stay with us. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. 
Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every $20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at Armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. Henry Ford carefully cultivated an everyman image until his dying day. And in some ways, he was an everyman. He was a farmer's son, born in the rural community of Dearborn, Michigan. He was not very well educated by today's standards, since this was a time when good education was reserved for America's elites. He was born in 1863, in the midst of the Civil War. But his family was solidly middle class. He wasn't hungry as a child. As a man, he liked to pretend he grew up poorer than he did. His image, like everything else about his world, was something to manipulate and control for personal gain, whether that gain was financial or benefited the more amorphous desires of the ego. Perhaps that's why Ford was drawn to machines. With machines, you could hone every little detail until something was perfect and, of course, profitable. As a boy, Ford became interested in watches and repairing the finicky little mechanisms. The hobby consumed him. He began repairing timepieces for other kids, then adults. He traveled to local watchmakers and antiquarians to learn all he could about his new trade and to buy and sell parts for his small operation. Meanwhile, he showed virtually no interest in anything else, especially his family's farm or chores around the house. When he was 12, he upgraded his mechanical obsession from watches to a strange device he saw in a field by the side of a Dearborn road. It was a primitive steam engine, used at the time for hauling plows or thresher machines. For Ford, the sighting was a seminal and existential moment. He badgered its engineer with questions. He needed to understand everything about it. But the machine represented something bigger to young Ford. Possibilities. He knew he was better than Dearborn. Seeing the steam engine showed him that it was possible to build a machine that could literally transport him somewhere else, somewhere his talents would be appreciated. From this moment forward, Ford believed that was his destiny. Resigned to his son's lack of interest in farming, in 1879, the elder Ford allowed 16-year-old Henry to move to Detroit and jumped around different companies as a machinist's apprentice. Through this experience, he learned the basics of engine manufacture, operation, and repair. After three years of education, Ford returned to Dearborn and two years later got a job at the Westinghouse Corporation, repairing their portable steam engines. Meanwhile, he also took bookkeeping and accounting courses at a local college and in 1888 got married to Clara Bryant. Within a few years, they would have their only child, Edsel. He was building a life in Dearborn 
But that was never the end game. In 1891, the 28-year-old accepted a job as an engineer with the Edison Corporation in Detroit. Within two years, he was promoted to chief engineer. Meanwhile, at home, Ford was tinkering on his own machines. Every day before and after work, he sat in the kitchen and worked on his combustion engine. Specifically, he wanted to make a horseless carriage, something which could transport people quicker and faster than horse-drawn buggies. Finally, on June 4, 1896, 32-year-old Henry built and tested the quadricycle, his first automobile. It was slow and unwieldy, but it worked. The success gave Henry the confidence he needed to quit his job at Edison. He knew with enough time, he'd be able to improve upon the design. In 1899, to facilitate the project, he founded the Detroit Automobile Company and rustled up some investors. However, Henry wasn't the only entrepreneur to see the lucrative potential of the automobile. That same year, 57 other Americans started car companies. And unfortunately for Henry, many were vastly more successful. None of the primitive automobiles manufactured at this time bore much resemblance to the cars we know today. None had roofs, and most engines were in the back. Most barely functioned, and when they did, they were prone to fires and tipping over. Like his competitors, Ford's first car was basically a death trap. But unlike his competitors, who were fine with profiting off a defective novelty, Ford refused to market the car until he had addressed and corrected its many problems. And because of his continual tinkering with models and further production delays, Ford failed to bring a final product to fruition. By the end of 1900, the company's stockholders were growing impatient with Ford, and in the new year, they dissolved the Detroit Automobile Company. Instead of dwelling on his failures, the ever-industrious Ford continued tinkering on his own until he developed a safer, more powerful car. And the only reasonable way to test it was to enter Michigan's first ever automobile race and go up against one of the world's first professional drivers, Alexander Winton. Ford and his new car initially struggled around the track. However, after Winton's engine overheated, Ford's more reliable machine cruised to an easy victory. The win was not only a triumph for Ford, but was also heralded as one for the underdog. Hard work and good old-fashioned American ingenuity defeated a much more imposing and experienced opponent. Soon, Ford began winning races left and right, which caught the eyes of a new group of wealthy investors. These men were seemingly more willing to be patient with Ford. On June 16, 1903, the Ford Motor Company was born. Within weeks, the first Ford automobile was unveiled, a simple two-seat car powered by an eight-horsepower engine. It was attractive, reliable, and an immediate success. Over the next two years or so, the company would make 25 cars a day and sell over 1,000 cars. And yet, 
none were quite up to Ford's exacting standards. So Ford engaged in a highly secretive operation within his factory. He wanted to design a car with a more efficient engine, a safer and more secure suspension, and above all, a more affordable, easier build process. On October 1st, 1908, he and his team of engineers unveiled the results of the project, the Model T. Listed at $850, the Model T cost the equivalent of about 18 months of an average salary. However, this was vastly more affordable than any other car on the market, the average of which cost more than $2,000. Between the cost and its durability, the Model T became an instant hit. It's impossible to overstate the impact of the Model T on American life. The car gave ordinary Americans a freedom they never enjoyed before. Not only did it speed up travel, but it eliminated the significant expense of caring for horses. As such, Model Ts were being purchased as fast as they were built. Even people who had no previous interest in cars bought one for fear of missing out. Amidst this astonishing success, 45-year-old Henry Ford knew that his supply of Model Ts was not keeping up with the astronomical demand. So he began testing a new method to build his cars faster. A method that would change the American industrial landscape forever. Coming up, Ford won't stop until his company is the best. Love. It's been the subject of poems, novels, music, and film. It's also been the driving force behind some of the most horrendous crimes in history. Hi, I'm Vanessa Richardson. Join me for season two of Criminal Couples and meet the lovers who took their passion to perilous lengths. Featuring standout episodes from female criminals, serial killers, solved murders, and crimes of passion, this season of Criminal Couples gets to the heart of what makes two turn to a life of murderous crime. Some couples were set off by revenge or greed. Others were fueled by sex and drugs. All acted in the name of love. Discover the darker side of desire in season two of the Spotify original from Parcast, Criminal Couples. Follow for free and tune in every Monday, only on Spotify. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all, but it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Now back to the story. In the fall of 1908, 45-year-old automobile engineer Henry Ford released his most popular car yet, the Model T. Catering to the average American, the affordable new car was a massive hit. Unfortunately, Ford wasn't able to meet the high demand, so he looked for new ways to build his popular car even faster. Inspired by the streamlined methods used in local slaughterhouses, 
Ford decided to test an assembly line setup in his factory. Instead of each car being constructed individually by teams of laborers and engineers, workers would specialize in one small part of the production process. He hoped this would hone workers' skills and efficiency and thus speed up the process of building cars. Ford tested this new method in each department, engine, brakes, body, and so on. The previous record for making a Model T had been 12 hours. Now it took an average of one hour and 33 minutes. But while Ford was turning his company into a hyper-efficient business, his employees suffered. Many felt that the assembly line was dehumanizing and cruel, reducing them to little more than cogs in a machine. Longtime employees began quitting in droves. New hires lasted a few days. Ford knew that if he wanted his new method to succeed in the long run, something would have to change. In early 1914, Ford held a meeting with his senior managers. As the story goes, he then jotted down a number on a blackboard, $26 million. This represented the previous year's profits. The following figures, in addition to some others, were then written on the board. $2.34 and $5. The first was an assembly line worker's current daily salary. The second number indicated what Ford agreed to raise it to. The men assembled immediately voiced their disapproval, but Ford would not be swayed. He argued that not only would this eliminate turnover at his factories, it would also allow his workers to afford Model Ts of their very own. Now, even unskilled American laborers could become consumers. And whatever the senior managers thought of his scheme, he was going ahead with it. The day after he went public with his salary announcement, 10,000 applicants showed up at the factory gates. Building an affordable car had made Ford a hero to average Americans. The $5 daily wage made him a saint. But what most Americans didn't know was that the guarantee of $5 a day came with stipulations. Ford had always touted himself as a paragon of virtue, and he expected the same of all his employees, most of whom were recent immigrants and largely unfamiliar with U.S. customs. And just like his assembly line cars, Ford wanted his employees homogenized. To achieve this autocratic goal, Ford made his non-English-speaking workers attend mandatory language classes. If they didn't, they were fired. But his most invasive endeavor was the creation of the Ford Sociological Department, an arm of the company that served as a means to intrude upon and control the lives of his employees. Ford had inspectors from the department visit the homes and apartments of his employees. During these visits, the inspectors monitored the living spaces for any perceived infractions, such as uncleanliness, a lack of clean water, or the presence of boarders. If an employee's domicile was not up to the department standards, their wages were withheld, and they were given six months to make improvements to their living conditions. If their situation didn't change, they were fired. 
Not only was this new system a complete invasion of privacy, it was also a reflection of Ford's dangerously inflated ego. The public's adulation had gone straight to Ford's head. Not only had he begun to think of himself as an almost divine individual who knew what was best for everyone else, he also worked overtime to foster that image to the public. Ford even established a photographic department at his company. The department was created to produce still photographs of and motion pictures about the company and its operations and products. But in reality, it seemed that its sole purpose was to churn out propagandist documentaries about Ford. In these documentaries, Ford burnished his fabricated image as a rural farm boy who overcame the almost insurmountable obstacles in his path to build an automobile empire. Ford also depicted himself chopping wood and performing other menial tasks to prove that despite his wealth and stature, he was still an ordinary American, just like the folks buying his cars. An ordinary American with the values of the best everyman, too. During an era where the temperance movement was gaining steam, he abstained from smoking and drinking alcohol. And he ostentatiously rejected the society of America's elites. While he did move into an enormous mansion, it was in Dearborn, not ritzy Gross Point, which other industrialists called home. He was, by all measures, the complete opposite of J.P. Morgan. And not everyone was charmed. Ford's paternalistic, self-congratulatory moralizing did not go unnoticed by those who knew Ford personally. Even some journalists wrote critical pieces about him and his company, condemning his overreach and his self-aggrandizing publicity. Unlike some previous tycoons who commanded enormous respect, a number of educated Americans thought Henry Ford was a fool despite his success as an inventor and entrepreneur. Naturally, this upset Ford. Even more upsetting, though, was the fact that his son, Edsel, had harbored a near-universal respect. Unlike his father, Edsel Ford was kind, quiet, and well-liked. He also made no secret of his affinity for the finer things in life, including cigarettes, liquor, parties, and his stately mansion in Gross Point. He even married into one of Detroit's most prominent families. Ford resented his son's perceived vices and aristocratic ideals. As a young man, Edsel skipped college and instead worked his way up the Ford corporate ladder. But even after Edsel worked his way up to an executive position, his father was still hard on him and rarely relinquished any actual control of the company to his son. And as time went on and Ford met other perceived slights, he only got more distressingly self-righteous. In 1915, the first stone of a new Ford factory was planned along Detroit's River Rouge. The factory was going to be so enormous, it would dwarf most American cities. But Ford's vision almost immediately ran into opposition. In 1916, he was sued over dividends that he had withheld from investors and used to build the factory. Though Ford disputed the charges, 
he eventually paid out over $20 million. Furious at what he saw as betrayal, Ford devised a plan to rid the company of any stockholders besides himself. The company was not public, so that meant getting rid of his original private investors. The scheme began with an announcement. He was leaving to form his own outfit. Edsel would take over the Ford operation. Naturally, everyone was completely bewildered. In the ensuing panic, the investors wasted no time unloading their stakes in the company. However, this was exactly what Ford had envisioned. He had no real intention of branching off. Instead, he used the opportunity to buy back the floundering shares himself at a bargain. The endeavor cost him $106 million, about $2 billion in 2022 dollars. But it ensured that he would never have to answer to another shareholder in his lifetime. Meanwhile, after reclaiming his position at the top, Ford relegated Edsel to a meaningless position overseeing the Model T. Other employees weren't even so lucky as that. Ford purged the company of anyone he felt wasn't completely loyal, often in the most humiliating manner possible. Sometimes employees would learn they were fired by showing up to a completely empty office. With his company now firmly back in his control, no one would be able to stand in his way or the way of his Herculean factory project. Except, perhaps, himself. In 1916, Ford sued the Chicago Tribune for libel after the paper characterized him as an ignorant idealist and an anarchist enemy of the nation. Three years later, when the case went to trial, Ford took the stand. His cross-examination at the hands of the Tribune's lawyers became one of the most bizarre courtroom scenes of the 20th century. One of the defense's tactics was to prove to the jury that Ford was, in fact, completely ignorant by posing a series of simple questions. The Tribune's lawyer asked, Do you know anything about the revolution? Ford responded, Yes, sir. The lawyer continued, What revolution did you have in mind, Mr. Ford? Ford replied, In 1812. Over eight long days, Ford was subjected to a series of basic historical and cultural questions. His off-the-mark answers successfully illustrated that the Tribune was right about his ignorance. The Tribune could not, however, prove that he was an anarchist. So the paper was found guilty of libel. But the widespread horror at Ford's showing was evident in the Tribune's punishment. It was forced to pay Ford only six cents as recompense. Ford, meanwhile, suffered significantly more, at least at the hands of America's intelligentsia. After the trial, Ford's intellect became front-page fodder. The New York Post declared, the man is a joke. He may not be an anarchist, but his mind is anarchic. The New York Times was no kinder, stating, Mr. Ford has been submitted to a severe examination of his intellectual qualities. He has not received a pass. But while the so-called American elites viewed Ford with disdain, 
His shameful ignorance on the stand actually endeared him to many working Americans. He received hundreds of letters of support, most claiming that he was a victim of an unfair and biased media witch hunt. And it seems this adulation went straight to Ford's head. Instead of working to rectify his public image, Ford doubled down. Seeking revenge against his perceived enemies, the following year, Ford embarked on his own journalistic smear campaign. Unfortunately for Ford, this new mission was so anti-Semitic that it earned condemnation from the President of the United States. Coming up, Henry Ford's op-eds further divide the American public, while his behavior and ideology grow more militant and reactionary. eBay Motors is here for the ride. With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only, exclusions apply. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Now back to the story. In 1919, Henry Ford's lawsuit against the Chicago Tribune for libel went to trial. Despite humiliating himself in the eyes of the elite, among the average Americans, he was still the populist hero they all knew and loved. But Ford never forgot how he was portrayed in the press nor that it was a continuation of years of lambasting. So, in an effort to once again control his narrative, Ford decided to buy a small newspaper called the Dearborn Independent in 1918. But he would also use this paper to unfairly attack American Jews. Like other anti-Semites, Ford believed that a massive Jewish cabal controlled major industries like finance and politics. As such, he claimed that Jews were responsible for the decaying of America's social, cultural, and economic fabric. Two years after he purchased the Dearborn Independent, Ford used the paper to publish a series of op-eds entitled The International Jew, The World's Problem. It's unlikely that Ford actually wrote the articles since he was a poor writer. However, he was certainly aware of their content. The articles blamed Jews for everything that Ford believed was wrong with American society, including lax morals, financial avarice, and jazz music. But mostly, the articles regurgitated anti-Semitic tropes that had existed for centuries. Ford even reprinted the Protocols of the Elders of Zion, a fraudulent anti-Semitic text created by Russia's secret police in the early 1900s. It outlines a plan for Jewish domination of the world and is completely fictional. 
Ford's anti-Semitism and embrace of conspiracy theories reflected his dangerous ignorance in all things non-automobile related. Even more insidious was his need to spread his views far and wide. He required that the Dearborn Independent be distributed at his factories and in Ford showrooms and garages. And finally, his business started to suffer. Influential Americans organized boycotts of Ford products. Even President Woodrow Wilson admonished Ford for spreading lies. And then, San Francisco-based attorney and activist Aaron Sapiro sued Ford and his newspaper for libel after the Dearborn Independent had published a number of anti-Semitic and defamatory articles about him. At first, Ford planned to testify and fight the accusations. But perhaps he realized the fight was futile and probably started to worry about the impact on his bottom line, changed his mind, shut down his newspaper, and settled out of court with Sapiro. He also issued a written public apology. However, Ford didn't compose most of the apology himself, and his anti-Semitism never ebbed. Years later, in 1938, he accepted the Order of the Grand Cross of the German Eagle, the highest honor given to foreigners by the Nazi government. But if publicly recanting was meant to save his business, it wasn't enough. In part, because his anti-Semitism wasn't Ford Motor Company's only problem. By the mid to late 1920s, the novelty of the Model T had worn off and the company was rapidly losing market share. Other companies, like General Motors and Dodge, had begun introducing new and improved models each year. Ford had not. And because of antitrust legislation, Ford couldn't buy or squeeze out his competitors, like his Gilded Age predecessors. He had to adapt or die. Virtually all of the senior executives at Ford, including Edsel, attempted to persuade Ford that the company needed to diversify its fleet. But Ford wouldn't listen. Instead, he assumed his now habitual role of victim. He railed against Americans for wanting fancier cars instead of the utilitarian Model T. The irony, of course, was that Ford had helped create a country of American consumers, Consumers who always want newer, better things. For nearly a year, Ford remained intransigent as Edsel and others presented him with blueprints and designs for sleeker, more dynamic cars. But finally, in the late summer of 1926, Ford agreed to the changes. On May 26, 1927, 63-year-old Henry and 33-year-old Edsel watched the 15 millionth Model T roll off the assembly line. Henry Ford still believed it was the perfect car. Nonetheless, it was also announced that the Model T would be discontinued. Six months later, Ford unveiled its new automobile, the Model A. Faster, sleeker, safer, and more fun to drive than the Model T, the Model A was an instant hit. Not only did it come in a variety of colors, as opposed to the standard black, it was also available on an installment plan. During its first year of production, Ford sold 700,000 Model As, making it even more popular than its predecessor. 
But it was all Edsel, and Ford knew it. Edsel had been responsible for the Model A's design and execution. And instead of praising his son, Ford was jealous. He felt Edsel had betrayed him by building a better car, even if it single-handedly revived his company's fortune. So he made sure that at least publicly, he took all the credit. It was during this period of lying and manipulation that Ford's new River Rouge factory, the city-sized plant, finally opened its gates after 11 years of construction. The factory was essentially its own self-contained city in Dearborn. It employed more than 75,000 workers and utilized 700 million gallons of water per day from the River Rouge. Its goal was to produce 10,000 cars per day. Henry Ford's dream was finally operational, and yet he immediately grew disillusioned with the River Rouge plant and American society at large. This was likely because his new plant was located in Dearborn. When Ford had grown up there, it was an intimate rural farming community. Now the farms were replaced by factories, not just his own. The world he'd fought so hard to manipulate and control was nevertheless slipping away from him. He didn't recognize his home. So Ford retreated inward and embarked upon the most nostalgic and perhaps seemingly bizarre endeavor of his career. Years earlier, Ford had commissioned a reconstruction of his childhood home. He filled the home with models of everything he remembered from his youth, from his little workbench to his mother's china. Soon, he began purchasing other historical buildings. He had them moved to an enclave that he named Greenfield Village. Where he banned phones and collected different kinds of antiquated technology. It was a fantasy world where he could retreat into an alternate reality. One where the world was all his and all under his all-knowing control. But as Ford was playing make-believe, the real world would soon experience a very real financial panic, one even he couldn't ignore. After the Wall Street crash of 1929, the Ford Motor Company, like virtually every other company around the world, saw slumping sales. It was forced to lay off huge numbers of employees and was in danger of shutting down. Ford reacted with characteristic misdirected antagonism. He believed that the slumping sales were somehow the fault of his son Edsel and his employees, who were considering unionizing. To address these dual problems, Ford turned to Harry Bennett, the head of his internal security. Bennett had been a boxer and a sailor in the U.S. Navy before joining the Ford Motor Company. Though he stood only five feet six inches, Bennett's years as a boxer and sailor left him with a powerful, intimidating physique. He was known to personally fight or violently intimidate anyone who stood in his boss's way. Because of his loyalty and propensity for pugilism, he soon became Ford's second in command. Bennett indulged Ford's most bizarre and paranoid suspicions, even spying on Edsel. 
However, spying on Edsel was nothing compared to what Ford and Bennett did to lower-level employees. By the late 1930s, America was still in the midst of the Great Depression. Most other automakers had agreed to let their workers unionize, fearing that strikes would harm business even further. Ford disagreed. In 1937, when members of the United Auto Workers Union handed out leaflets at the River Rouge plant, Bennett and his goons beat up the organizers in full view of thousands of horrified employees. However, the beatings also occurred in front of several press photographers. Images of Bennett's men assaulting UAW organizers quickly became front-page news. The labor disputes and the violent reactions to them could not have come at a worse time for Ford, whose health was declining. Not that anyone knew. In 1938, just before turning 75, Henry Ford suffered a stroke and told no one. As Ford's health deteriorated, he tried to wait out his company's clashes with labor. However, when European political tensions started bleeding into the U.S., Ford knew he couldn't hold out for much longer. Despite Franklin D. Roosevelt's desire to stay out of the war, everyone knew America needed to arm itself just in case. And despite Ford's support for America remaining neutral during the war, he couldn't give up the windfall profit of government contracts for bombers. The only thing to threaten the contracts was unionization. On April 1, 1941, laborers in the River Rouge plant organized a strike, despite continued threats of violence. True to his character, Edsel Ford was willing to engage with the workers and union organizers and negotiate. The two sides actually came to a mutually beneficial agreement, but Henry Ford refused to sign off. However, by this point, Ford was out of options. Violence had only resulted in negative publicity. So on June 20th, 1941, he reluctantly agreed to the union contract. With the factory back up and running, Ford was able to fill its lucrative government orders for bomber planes. More importantly, Edsel's work negotiating the deal appeared to signal that he would finally assume control of the company from his aging father. But just as plans were set in motion for Edsel to step in, the younger Ford began experiencing his own health problems. What began as a diagnosis of ulcers soon morphed into an all-encompassing illness that ravaged Edsel's body. He was consumed with pain, suffering from regular fevers and vomiting constantly. Through it all, his father showed little compassion. Henry believed his son's illness was a sign of weakness, a result of his hedonistic lifestyle. Eventually, though, Henry Ford learned what his son was actually suffering from, stomach cancer. At first, Ford refused to believe the diagnosis. When he finally accepted it, he contacted every doctor at his disposal and ordered them to fix his son. But just like the changing landscape of Dearborn, this was not something Ford could control. All the doctors told him the same thing. It was too late. 
In May 1943, at the age of 49, Edsel succumbed to cancer. Even though he was extremely harsh on Edsel, losing Edsel seemingly devastated Ford. Or at least, coming face to face with how he treated his son over the years devastated him. For months, he wandered the grounds of his fairy tale village alone, muttering to himself. It seems Ford never got over the loss. Though he tried to run his company in Edsel's absence, he suffered a series of additional strokes each resulting in further cognitive decline. Finally, on April 7, 1947, 83-year-old Henry Ford passed away. In spite of his anti-Semitism, xenophobia, violence against his own workers, and his shameful parenting, 100,000 Americans gathered to view his body. To them, he was still a hero, a common man whom they believed had defied the odds, shunned the elite, and done everything his way. Ford's propaganda had ultimately persevered. Unlike Vanderbilt, Carnegie, Morgan, and Rockefeller, Henry Ford wasn't technically a Gilded Age robber baron. In fact, his predecessors were all dead or dying as his career reached its apex. By the early 1920s, the nature of American business had changed significantly. The Sherman Antitrust Act and the Federal Trade Commission Act outlawed virtually all of the methods that the robber barons had used to amass their fortunes, corner markets, and vanquish competitors. Ford's success was a result of innovation and building an affordable, high-quality product. In fact, Ford loathed the robber barons. He was a populist. Even if he thought he knew better than any other everyman, he threw his lot in with the people in everything from marketing to his sense of self. And in the process, he had an enormous impact on American society. Almost single-handedly, he introduced car culture to the United States. He also introduced a living wage, at least to those who attended his bizarre indoctrination classes, and he revolutionized the manufacturing process for the automobile industry. While those things may have amounted to a positive step forward, he effectively created a society of middle-class consumers, one driven to purchase and own things they didn't necessarily need. In that respect, Ford's legacy continues to this day. He shaped a society that runs on credit where a number of Americans are one paycheck or health scare away from poverty. But the most pernicious aspect of Ford's legacy may be the limited, propagandized vision of America that he clung to and tried to force on others. His anti-Semitism and desire to indoctrinate workers with what he viewed as the proper version of American culture were two sides of the same coin. They both leaned on harmful views about groups that are often considered other, like immigrants who hold on to their cultures of origin, and of course, Jews. This aspect of his legacy is, unfortunately, as entrenched in American culture as the car. Of course, Ford wasn't the only one who contributed to that legacy. The American dictator is a dedicated capitalist, a ruthless businessman, 
a tycoon, a man who manipulates the little people one way or another for his own ends, whatever the consequences might be. And that is the legacy of the Gilded Age. Thanks for listening to Dictators. Among the many sources we used, we found PBS's documentary The American Experience, Henry Ford, and Stephen Watts's The People's Tycoon especially useful to our research. Next week, we'll shift gears and begin a new series on dictators who conquered the world. You can find all episodes of Dictators and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. We'll see you next time. Dictators is a Spotify original from Parcast. It is executive produced by Max Cutler. Sound designed by Juan Borda, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Trent Williamson, Carly Madden, and Bruce Kitovich. This episode of Dictators was written by Tony Goodman, with writing assistance by Joe Guerra and Nora Battelle, fact-checking by Adriana Romero, and research by Bradley Klein. Dictators stars Kate Leonard and Richard Rossner. It's been said that love is a many-splendored thing. That is, until it's not. In season two of Criminal Couples, discover true stories of couples who turned their love lives into a life of crime. Lies and deceit are just the beginning. Follow the Spotify original from Parcast, Criminal Couples. Catch new episodes every Monday, free and only on Spotify. 